Um, we have, again, just been doing those methodical things. So I, last week, we got through, in 2 Kings, we got through to the part of chapter 4, which is, I don't remember if in the morning class, did I get through chapter 4 at all with you guys? Okay, I knew I didn't. And, you know, and sadly, we won't have time to do a huge amount of time in here, but just by way of kind of revving up to move on into where we are this week, I, you know, let's go back to chapter 4 briefly and have an opportunity to just ask some questions or to uh, express some of the things that you saw that were, were important or insightful to you or, or that were complicated and that you feel like you need to have ironed out. What was going on in 2 Kings 4 last week? A bunch of things. There's a whole bunch. So what you conclude when you look at that is, is 2 Kings 4 seems to be just a rendition uh, or, or a, uh, an, um, a listing, basically, of various kinds of miracles that Elijah was engaged in, correct? What would be the point at, in this? And we're going to see this again as we move on th into this week. More opportunities where we just see lists of Elijah did this, and then Elijah did this, and Elijah did this, and Elijah did this. Why is God putting that into this record for us of of the history of Israel and their kings, and did they follow God or not? That he was present even though they were doing evil. Okay. The fact that God was present is part of the picture that, that is trying to be impressed upon us, that God, although Israel had left God, what? God had, God left, Israel. God had not left Israel, right? Um, what are some of the, uh, let me say it this way, when you evaluate analytically in a bigger way about what's going on when he's presenting these things through the, about the prophet Elisha in this case, what is it that he's trying to convey to us about him, about himself, about who God is? Let's just let's do a little bit of a list. I did one for myself last night just for fun. And anal, uh, I looked at each of the characters, major characters that we're looking at, the Lord, Elisha, and then Israel and the Gentile people, right? I separated them out, and then I went through, and I, I'm just in my mind thinking through things like what we see here in 2 Kings 4, where it's all these lists of miracles. The widow is, is given uh, a miraculous supply, right, of oil, and she's able to then save her, her family from famine. We see this woman then is rewarded later by giving a son, correct? We saw then the child dies. And the man of God then comes and heals this child. We see God shows her there is no help in a staff. Now, I thought that was an interesting point. Hello, Lois. Welcome back. So happy to see you. Okay, so God shows there's no help in a staff. Now, I wanted to talk about that point real quick, and then we're going to go do this character list a little bit. What was that deal? Why does he give to his, Elisha give to his helper a staff and say, go lay it on the, on the boy and heal him, right? Why does he tell him to go do that? What do you know is true about the people of the, the land in general where they're at? They are. They're, yeah, they're worshiping inanimate objects. They're putting something in front of themselves. They think it holds supernatural power, and they are worshiping it. Um, I remember not, I don't, oh, well, no, I'm not sure if I should. Well, 
I remember going to a certain place, and one of the, I won't even go into the details, that'll save my neck. Just be careful what I say, right? But we entered into this particular church. I was traveling overseas, and when we would go in, there was a statue of a certain person, and you were to rub the toe for good luck. And this was at a spiritual church that supposedly loves God, right? Or they say they love God, and I'm, I'm not doubting that some of them don't. But they felt that there was some kind of power or some kind of special omen that they would receive some kind of endowment by touching the toe of this particular person and rubbing the toe. Um, other things, like we've got the goblet that Jesus gave the communion from, and they're always looking for it, or the, the holy sepulcher, right, and the, or the shroud, Right? Uh, so all these items. So here we have a storyline of a stick. And he says, take this stick and go and lay it on the boy. And what happens? Nothing. <laughs> Interesting. So what in the world? Because doesn't it seem out of place to you in the storyline? It felt like the, the storyline was flowing and he was on his way. And he had been doing miracle was given. And another miracle was listed. And another miracle was listed. And then he hits the stick thing. He says, go lay the stick on the boy. And nothing. <laughs> Did you question as to why, as an inductive student, did you go, hmm, there's got to be a point to this? So tell me, what do you think was going on with that? Why would God put that in the record? And why did Elisha make that point? What was he doing? Mm-hmm. From God himself. So it was to bring the glory back to God. Just previous to this in chapters just before, we had had Elijah and Elisha with a mantle, remember? They took the mantle and they, they I don't know if they shook it or they touched the water, right? And the water separated, so this miracle passed through. Elijah is taken up by a chariot of fire. And then Elisha turns around and as he comes back, he does the same thing. He touches the mantle to the water, and the water parts. You have another miracle. So what could a person falsely conclude then about the mantle? That the mantle had held power, right? But what was interesting to me was if you go back to that story and read it carefully for yourself, do you remember what Elisha says as he's about to touch the mantle to the water? Where is the God of Israel? That, so he was calling on the God of Israel to do the miracle. He wasn't saying that the mantle had any power of significance. It was just, it was just an item. It, ha, it was a... Now, does God often use visible things, like go sprinkle salt into the lake or, or you know, something like that? He, there are some things that he does that. He does a visible thing to help people understand the, the concept behind it, the idea of salt being a preservative or a purifier, right? And so that he says, go throw salt in it and it'll be good. But is it because he threw salt in it? No, it's because whose, by whose word and authority was the miracle performed? And to whom did the people have to go to to get this miracle accomplished? To God. It's very interesting because they don't say, in many of these records, have you noticed how often Elisha's name is not used? What is he referred to as? 
the man of God. So to me, as you're looking at, at the storylines of Elisha in the record of these miracles he's performing, one of the things, again, inductively, you back up and you try to get a bigger picture, and you're going, okay, why is God giving us this information in this storyline where he wants us to see that Israel had, had failed their God and that God was being faithful to them, right? And that, that it, because of their sin, God had to exile them. There's consequences for sin. Well, because in this storyline, we, we have a man of God who's now trying to show us the power of God, but, but he wants to present it to us in a way that makes sure that we remember the power of glory is to give God the glory and that the power is in God and in the man or woman of God, not in monetary, physical items. So the staff story gets dropped into the middle of this, and he says, go put the staff on him, and he does it to dispel superstitions. And trust me, there were plenty of superstitions in that day about things that had power or did not have power. And I think it's funny because when you read the Revelation story, even at the end of, of times, we're going to have another time where these signs and wonders are going to start to be performed, and people are going to bite off on it and believe it, right? They're going to believe in power in inanimate objects, but they won't believe in the power of God, right? They have faith for things that are nonsensical, but the, but the things which are sim simple, people are skeptical of. Did we see a storyline this week about that, where something was so simple that it enraged the man at first because he couldn't grasp, get his hands around the idea that, can it be that simple, right? Yes, Naaman in washing in the Jordan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, schmuck. So part of my thing is thinking that the other, I guess, kind of guessing, but I mean, if he had done this miracle and all these people saw this, and then later he was defamed because he got, you know. True. So that could be another thing. I hadn't thought of that. She's saying that because Gezi, Gehese, the gay one. Gehazi, Gehazi, because Gehazi was the one who was told, go ahead and do that. And later God knew he was going to be uh, basically, well, leprosy, which is, makes him an outcast. I hadn't thought of that. That's a good point. I'll have to go back and look at that again. Very cool. Nice. Good observation. All right. So let's talk about then on, on the whole. Okay, so we're not going to do anything more on four. That was it. Sorry. <laughs> but it kind of gave you the flow of things. What you see going on there is God showing God's man powerful, doing God's work. And the work is not because of inanimate objects. And the work is not even because of Elijah himself. But it's because he is the man of God. And so where is the power? God. And I always, 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 this is just me. This I have like a default verse in my head, which goes back to 1 John uh, 3, where he goes, G, uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, right? And he asks, and he says to him, I know that you are a man of God, because no man can do these things that you do if God is not with him. These miracles that Jesus was performing were the evidence that God was present. 
And so the same thing with this man of God, this prophet. He's performing these mighty miracles, but he's doing so to bring God the glory and to let Israel know the God who performs these miracle miracles is still in their midst, is still pursuing them, and is still uh, desiring for them to come back to him, to him in repentance to repent, to walk with him. So Elisha's stories are in here, and they're beautiful, they're fun, they're, they're enjoyable for us. It's like I, Carrie was saying earlier, she said, this part's these stories of Elisha, they're kind of uplifting, where you get back into the kings and you start going like this again, you know, because you're like, what is wrong? You know, it looks like you're hitting your head against the wall, right? Okay, now, go back. We have covered a lot from the days of Solomon up to where we are now. And since you've got that review in your mind from last week, and because we've done just a little bit of, of insight in where we're at right now with, with chapter 4 again, I want you to tell me, in general, what are the things that you are seeing about who God is? What is his character like? How is he presenting himself to us? Let's do this. And I'm going to call this as an analytical... So this is an analytical character list. So thinking back on some of the storylines that we've done so far, what are some things that you have learned through these stories in the Kings and Prophets about the Lord? Who is the Lord as far as you're seeing? Okay. Covenant maker and keeper. And he values that, too, doesn't he? He values it. He sets it up on a high uh, podium, a high standard of, of expectation for those who enter into... You know, remember, by definition, somebody, can you remember what definition is of covenant? A bereath karaf, do you remember? And what is it? To become, to become one. Okay, that's one of its qualities. By definition, what is a covenant? Another word for, uh, give me a, a synonym for the word covenant. Marriage. There you go. A legally binding agreement. So it's legally binding agreement. So he is the covenant maker and keeper. Keeper. He values covenant because covenant is a vow that's given and it is a legally binding agreement. Right? And in the case of God... Does God ever break his vows? No. No. Can man break theirs? Yes. Thank goodness salvation is God making covenant with us. It's not the other way around. We don't make a covenant with him. He makes a covenant with us. We come under the covenant, and then we are liable and responsible under the covenant, but it's a covenant of grace that's given to us, although we don't, we don't merit it, we don't earn it, right? And it's God that, that implements it. So what else do we know about God at this point? What have you seen about God, how he works, and what he thinks? He's patient. Okay, we should be able to tick these off. Patient. Merciful. And if any storyline comes to your mind, pop it out. He is faithful. 
because you know what? It's really easy, easy for you and I to sit here and say, well, I know the qualities of God, the characteristics of God, but I'm asking you to think through the, the storylines, through these records of, of how God was dealing with Israel, through the kings and the prophets that were looked at, what are some of the characteristics that you have seen about God? Well, he is creative. Yes, okay. He's creative. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Holy. Righteous. Now, if I were to ask you, how do you see in script, give me a storyline. How was he creative? How was he slow to anger? How was he shown as holy or as righteous? What storyline came to your mind that made you think of that about God? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. Very creative. Blinding them, sending spiritual warfare. Send, yeah, all kinds of things. Go this way, don't go that way. Yeah. All right. I know, and they had a they had a pretty long rule. Yes. 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 Yeah, I know. Does that blow your mind away? It's like, wait a minute, and not like that. But how many times has gone? proven himself to them by doing supernatural signs, which according to Nicodemus, for the Jew, this is evidence that God is with a person. So Elijah's performed all these miracles, proving that God is with him to the people, proving that God is in the midst of all of this, and then they turn around and want to arrest him or kill him or seize him. Or It sounds an awful lot like what happened with Jesus in his public ministry, how people kept wanting to pursue him and kill him rather than being in awe of the fact that he was doing these divine uh, inspi and inspiring uh, healings and supernatural signs. Okay, very good. Yes. And some people are just so, yeah, and some of these people, some of these characters that we've looked at, it does not matter what God does, they will not repent. They just keep, they dig, keep digging in their heels. But forgiveness, he's really forgiving. Okay. Okay. Yes. Any other things? Yeah. Think of all of the, the insights that he gave to Elisha just this week in the homework that we did. How he showed him the future and, and to the point that then he had a stare down with this guy. And, right. And the guy now feels exposed he knows that he knows now he's it's, his dirty laundry is out there for it to be seen and you know and instead of repenting he goes home and kills him <laughs> yeah i know he gives the, um, the gifts 
So he's gracious. He's wise. He's um, so he, yeah. Okay, sovereign. We see him as sovereign. I, I, unbelievable. Protector and provider. We see him as, as faithful but also dependable. You, you know, I don't know about you guys, but for me, this is one of the qualities about who God is, his sovereignty and his dependability, that he's unchanging in many regards. Not that he can never, you know, uh, move to do things differently if you repent. In other words, he's like, if you'll repent, I'll do this. But that's what makes him so dependable, because you absolutely know where the boundaries are. And you know what, what's expected. And so within that is a sense of real safety and security. You know how God operates. You know what is on his agenda. You know what his goal is, that it's about holiness. It's about faithfulness to him. It's about righteous living. It's about glory, his glory. And if we live within the realms of that, then what we know then is this is how God will respond. But likewise, people like, Gehazi, Gehazi, if he had only repented, how different his life would have ended, right? Any others? Any other thoughts? Well, just how much he loves his people. Yeah, his great love. Even the small people and, and even the enemy, the way he provided for the... Yes. So I would call that compassion. A grace, maybe. I, I tell you, he delays judgment, providing time for repentance, making him more than fair, and meaning he he gives every possible opportunity. As we just talked about the lo the longevity of some of these kings, how God waited. Ah Ahab and Jezebel are a couple of them all these miracles that he showed to prove that the gods that they were worshiping were false gods. Please open your eyes. Turn to the one true and living God. No, let's just burn babies alive on altars. And yeah, their response was to go even deeper into their sin. Um, impartially judges sin. Um, for instance, I think back on the storyline again of the prophet who's unnamed, the man who's told to go and confront uh, uh, Jeroboam and his altars that he had set up, remember? Yeah. And he gets killed in the end because he disobeyed God. And I'm thinking he's, an, he's impartial, but it also showed to us that he has a standard, and the standard is set very hard. The bar, the bar is set high for the people who serve him in particularly visible capacities. So Gezi, Gezi, uh, Gehezi, I'm going to have a hard time. There's a couple of these names I struggle with. Benghazi. Yeah, Benghazi, yeah. Gehazi. Okay, that's good. Gehazi, that'll help me. So Gehazi is, is um, working, basically. At, he's, he's one of the sons of the prophets, and he's working alongside of 
uh, Elisha as his helper. And he's in this very visible capacity, visibly known by the people as a prophet of God and as God's instrument. And then he pulls a stunt, right, of this, this sin that he commits. And so God's response to that is, it's a stern one, isn't it? Didn't, did any of you kind of think, well, why didn't he just do something a little less than, I mean, did he have to go to that extent? Did he, did it, was, my question is in your, is in your thinking, did any of you go, I wonder what this guy's storyline had been before this? What led up to this? Did, did any of you go there in your mind or thinking? Because you, got, you know that this is not something he did one time out of the clear blue. This was obviously a, a perpetual problem that had continued to grow to the place that now it became a very public thing, and it was interfering in the testimony of one of God's miracles that he was doing through this man, this, the salvation of this, this man. And so God had to come down hard on it. Arrogance or something. Maybe. That's a possibility as well, that it just, yeah, yeah. I mean, I would have been at that point, if I had been him, I would have turned to Elisha and said, Elisha, God is not with me like he is with you. I'm not going to have the power to raise someone from the dead. God, you know, or at least he would say, please endow me with the power of God to go do this. I mean, there should have been some kind of conversation. Instead, he just took the stick and went. So you wonder about it just a little bit. Yeah. He, he has a plan. I love that you followed it with that, that he not only has a plan, but he has revealed the plan. And so this is not a, a big secret to them, right? He has a plan, has a plan, and has revealed. Yes. Yes, right. Well, think about that. If you think about it, he has a plan and he's revealed his plan. Go all the way back to Abraham. And he told Abraham, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to a land, a seed, a nation. And then he says about him, but, but I'm going to send you into captivity for this number of years. He, for the, the sins of the Amorites are not yet fulfilled in other nations as well that were there. But also, what did he do during that time while they were in their captivity? He took this little tiny group of people and grew them into a nation so that when they were going to go to the land, they were a nation that could occupy. Otherwise, it would have been a couple of people trying to hang on to land. It would have never worked, right? Plan, God's plan, it's so, it's so majestic. Yes. All right, patient, long-suffering, merciful, loves all men, desires that all men come to faith provides a plan, has a plan, looks out for, the wel for our welfare, omniscient, nothing is hidden from him. He's able to watch over kingdoms and individual lives. Can you think of the scope of that? He, he, everything from you and I's individual tiny little life, he, he is involved in your life and my life. He knows your heart. He examines the heart. He, his word, it says, penetrates, and it can divide between uh, thoughts and intent. Right? Which is why he can justly and righteously judge people. Right? He's forgiving. He reaches out. He, his, his desire then is that they all be saved. Um, he's 
he is life and the life giver. We know what, there's a couple of stories on that for sure, right? He's also the, the one who is capable and able and um, rightfully is able to take life as well. Not only give life, but take life. And I think that one in our personal world is a real hard one for a lot of people to swallow. When a child dies, when a husband dies, when, a, when somebody close to you is taken away, you know, it's real, it's real easy and very common for unbelievers to say it's God's fault. And we saw the king do that when he saw this cannibalism that was going on. And who does he blame? The man of God and, and the Lord. He doesn't look around and say, why is this going on, right? Um, we very easily want to just blame God for all the bad things, but then ignore God the rest of the time. That's typical for us. Um, he impartially judges sin. He, he loves the unlovable and the rejected. I think that's interesting because of, of our storyline this week. So those are just some thoughts. And I did the same thing on Elisha, and I did the same thing on the... Uh, Israel on the whole, basically the unrepentant Israel and the Gentile nation, I went to the negative too and said, this is how we see them behaving. And this is a really good exercise as an inductive student to do once in a while. Just when you start feeling like you're getting bogged down in stuff that's not really emotionally connecting you to what it is that you really want to know about who your God is and how you're to apply these things, take the time to just analyze. Analytical means pulling up here. You don't have to go to a verse and a, and a cross-reference and make a list with exact points, but simply on the whole, what are you seeing about who that person is? What do you see about who is Elijah? What do you see about who is God? What do you see about who Israel is as a nation at this point? And, and some of these other residual people around. Um, it's, it's very um, beneficial, I think, and very heartwarming. It helps you to kind of connect on a spiritual level things. Okay, so now we are ready to dig into the homework from this week. We're going to start with 1 Kings 5, and we'll see how far we get on this. Hopefully, we'll get through quite a bit. Sorry, 2 Kings. I have 1 Kings on here. Why did I do that? I do not know. <laughs> and I did it over here, too. And I did it over here. <laughs> i got to fix all of those. All right, so 2 Kings 5. What is our storyline? Who's the major events in this story? Naaman, and say his name, <laughs> Gehazi, okay. All right, so on the whole, if you had to just give me one or two words, how are you going to title your, the information that's given to you about Naaman? What happens with Naaman? He's healed of leprosy. So there's a good title, Naaman. Is cured. Of leprosy and Gehazi, G E H A, Gehazi is cursed with leprosy. That's exactly how I titled mine. Isn't that amazing? There you go. That'll work too. That's even 
or even shorter. That's right. So if you, if you, as long as you can remember who Naaman is and who who Gehazi is later in your life, then you're good to go. So that's perfect. I love it. Okay. So in the first opening part, this is really a cool story. In verses one to five, who do you see acting as a witness for the God of Israel? This little girl. Interesting. Did you notice this? The circumstance by which this little girl is actually where she is. Mm -hmm. So Naaman had gone into Israel at some time in a battle, and he had captured this little girl, taken her home, and given her to his wife as a maidservant, right? So this little girl was attending his wife, and interesting, you know, that we would, I think our, our idea in modern day about, um, uh, captives in, in times of war and so forth, we treat things differently than they did back then. Captives of war in that time, number one, understood once they were taken captive, they were to submit to that authority over them. Um, and for the most part, the real renegades, the, the real warriors, they were killed, right? But many, very often, a lot of the others were not. We see that, for instance, with Daniel when Babylon is, uh, they come take um, Dan, uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and they go into their captivity, and they're put into service to the king, right? So here we see kind of a similar storyline. We see a little girl, and she's been taken service. So this is the coolest thing, though. Who is it proclaiming the glories of God? this little child. <laughs> and she says, look, I know someone who can heal you. And what do you see about her heart towards her master? She really did care about him. Isn't that amazing? Which tells you a little bit about Naaman too. Do you, do you notice the subtlety here about Naaman? That he's loved by not only this little girl, but later in this, we see the servants really care about him as well. So you kind of begin right at the beginning here. You get a good perspective about who Naaman is as a human being. And you see God using the innocence of a little child and the, quote, you know, there's no coincidences with God, right? You see, again, here's a situation where this child has been taken captive and put into this man's home. What is the likelihood, right? Yeah, what are the odds that that's going to happen? But it did. And so in this storyline, we see this is the catalyst that gets the, the ball rolling for him. So he goes to the king in the next couple of verses, and the king writes a letter on his behalf and sends him off to Israel. But when he gets to Israel, what does the king of Israel do? <laughs> Isn't that weird? <laughs> so what does that tell you about the king of Israel? I'm sorry, it's Kathleen. I didn't hear you. He said, Am I God? I know. So what is that? But what does this response and his anger show you about his relationship with the God of Israel? He has none. He, he has no faith in the God of Israel. He doesn't believe the God of Israel is able or capable or willing or in any of those points. He's, he's not interested in healing someone. So all of a sudden now he's feeling the pressure from the king of Aram who sent his servant to get healed. And he's like, well, golly, who am I, God? I can't do this, right? He's, and so he becomes angered by it and maybe even a little bit fearful because the expectation is high that he's going to be able to accomplish this thing, which the little girl had testified saying, God can do this. What faith? 
Just go see him. I know he can fix you. How many of you guys have got little children in your life that they have this faith so, so often? Oh, Grandma, it'll just be fine. Just go do this. I'm like, it'll never work. And it works, right? It's just amazing. Kids have faith. It's just unbelievable. All right, so um, Elisha then um, hears about what happens, correct? And what is the result of that? Okay, so he calls Naaman and he comes to him. He says, come see me. Naaman gets there. But when he gets there, what happens? He doesn't actually come and see him, does he? What is Naaman's expectations in this? There's going to be some grand spectacle, right? There has to be some big hoopla. Now, where do you think he got that impression from? Yes, yes. I think about, I thought about the Baals. Do you remember the, the, where um, Elijah had the contest between the Baals and uh, our, you know, Jehovah, God? And they had set up their altars and they were, they were dancing and they were cutting themselves and they were, you know, just acting like crazies, basically. And I'm thinking these spectacles, I, I've seen this even in modern day churches today where sometimes you go into a church situation instead of it being worship and focus of God it's all about the spectacle and it is for me very disturbing to my spirit it is very uncomfortable to me I do not like to go into any kind of a setting where it's all about the grandness of presentation basically because then the focus is off of the God who can and the God whom, with whom you are to be engaging with in that moment. So um, Naaman, however, has had this experience with churchology, with spiritual things, where he's expecting a spectacle. So he gets there, and he's told he doesn't even get to see Elisha at first, remember? All right, now what? What happens next? He does get mad. He wants to stomp away, but what happens? How does this not happen? The servant, so if he had asked you right. Why can't you do this simple thing? Why can't you? What I love about this, though, is what could have been his response at that point? Well, this is just ridiculous. Turned around, stomped his feet, and went right back home to a ram. Right? Could have. And then what would have happened in his life? He'd still have leprosy right? He would have never been healed. But this is the interesting thing in the subtleties of this. What do you see about him, his character in this storyline? What do you see um, through his response? What do you see is going on inside of him? I think he has a really good heart and he really wants to believe. He is taken off. He, at first he is a little bit angered by the simplicity of it. But on the other hand, he's really desperate for healing, and he really wants to believe that there's a miracle out there for him in his life. Wow. Now, if we cannot grab hold of some of the little qualities of this storyline and take them into our present life as we share the gospel with people that we know, do you know people who really are desperate for a miracle in their life? They want to believe, it seems like, in the Lord. And yet the simplicity of it seems to put them off a bit, right? Honestly, he was humble enough to listen to the servant. 
There you go. And this is how you know that he really did have that, that heart that wanted to seek God and was seeking God because he was persuadable. Now, this is something that Carrie and I had a conversation earlier about, a totally different subject. But there are some people, it does not matter how much you talk to them about whatever it is, they are not persuadable. What does that tell you? Their heart is hard. They are not ready to make that move. They do not want it. And if you keep pushing it, what happens? Their heart gets harder. Right? They, they reject you in the end. I, I, I'm, the verse that I had thought of was, you know, that, that it's like casting pearls before swine. And they will turn and rend you. Correct? So... In this storyline, I just see a beautiful possible, you know, parallel picture to our, our prese presentation of the gospel to people in our lives and trying to help people come into faith. It's not always an easy flow. It, it isn't like you, you go, I, you know, I'm not very good at presenting the gospel to unbelieving world. I'm better at explaining, you know, the scriptures later after they've come into faith. But for those of you who this is your gifting and your passion, there are some people that you have to be patient with and you have to help them see with faith, with eyes of faith, and go beyond that and take that next step and say, like he said to, to them, look, if he just said to go do something really difficult, wouldn't you have done it? Of course I would. Well, then why can't you just take this small step of faith, believing God, just do it, the simplicity of the gospel message is that it's grace, that it's God's work, that it's not ours. You just have to take a step of faith, believing that God is there and he'll be with you in the midst of it, that he will do a transformation for you. And that it may take time. It may, may be a thing that has to do, be and occur little by little. But on the other hand, it could be, wow, like Naaman, right? So Naaman says, okay, he's persuaded. Yes. 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 So Kay asked you guys to do that. She said, go back now and look at Naaman's response. And what did you, what were, again, this is an analytical look at the heart. What did you see in the heart of him? Well, the first thing is you saw that he actually had a heart of thanksgiving. Once the, the healing came, it wasn't like, yay, I'm done with that and moving on back to oblivion. Have you known people, though, where God has done miracles for them and you can see that it's the Lord trying to draw them into relationship. They receive the miracle and then they move on. They, they, God doesn't even get a second glance after that. I got my miracle, I'm good, right? But with Naaman, you see thankfulness. So it's one of the qualities, and quite honestly, for all of us here, this is something that we should remember, I, I think, as a uh, kind of an exhortation, a word of exhortation to us. One of the strongest qualities of a, of a true Christian is a heart of thankfulness. If you have a heart of gratitude for the things that God has done and is doing, right, coupling that with your faith, believing that God can and, and will, then you have a testimony right there that stands alone almost all by itself, right? Okay, so he, he's easily persuaded. I love that. It did not take that much. The servant says, first of all, the little girl says go, and, he, and he's listening to a child, this great big brawly, you know, warrior, and he says, okay, and he goes. 
And then he gets skepticism from the king, but, but, then, but then God sends message through Elisha, calls him anyway. So nothing can thwart the, the plan of God. What do you see in this regard concerning God getting the gospel to people? Are there barriers that God cannot overcome? Who is it that said God is creative? Was that you, Susan? Here's another creative moment. How God was so creative in getting um, Naaman to him and to this opportunity of salvation through all these really strange things that happened that should not, none of them really should have been in place, but this little girl, and he listens, you know? Then he gets there, and there's a king, and there's a kind of a door in his face. But then God comes along through the back door and uh, through, I'm sure, again, a vision and insight that God gave him in a dream or, or a, a word spoken to his heart. He gets told, go and check on this man Naaman. It's also trying that you know, God is making it clear that neither of these kings had any authority in this realm. Because, yes. You know, the first king says, well, I'll send my letter. No, oh, yeah, as if that's going to make a difference. Yeah. Who am I? God? You're right. To, you know, You're starting to start a fight with me. Yes. yes, this guy's good at that, isn't he? You know, that's a really good point. And I hadn't really even focused on that at all, but that's another good little piece of this story. Okay. Yes. He shows gratitude by an offering, a gift of offering. So here we are into tithing, aren't we? Almost right away in his life, he wants to give back. He's, yes, he recognizes his position. He wants to show thankfulness. And he's so, he's so thankful that the monetary things to him is, is nothing. He wants to give these things back to the Lord because he's so thankful for what God has done for him. All right, and so a um, beautiful storyline. So we have Naaman, we see, and then we, then we turn at the end of that, we see his heart has been turned to God. I love the part where he says, well, please allow me. I thought, like, why do you have to have permission for this, right? Allow me a couple of donkey loads of soil to take back with me, right? And he says, because I will no longer worship those other gods. I will set up an altar with this dirt and have a place where I feel like basically I'm stepping onto holy ground. The God of Israel, the dirt from the land of the God of Israel is going to be symbolic for me. It's going to be a memento that's going to draw me into the presence of God. And I'm going to recognize God. And when I stand upon that mound, I will worship him and him alone. Wow. Would you not call that a profession of faith? That man has turned his heart to God. And, and then on top of that, he understands his, his predicament, however, that he's, he's going to have to go back and serve the king. And now what does he ask for? Pardon for the times when he knows he's going to be in a position that it, it's going to have the appearance of sin. Although in his heart, he won't be himself worshiping, but he's going to have to enter into the house of these false gods for the sake of his king in his role as his servant. So he asks for pardon concerning those things which he's going to have to participate in that he doesn't like. Wow, can we make some applications on that one? That was, that was, 
and he didn't like it, but he knew he couldn't get out of it, and there was no out of his control, right? So are there things sometimes for you and I, too, that are out of, con out of our control, and yet we know that where we are or where we have to go. And I found this a lot as a military wife. There were things, functions that I had to go to and attend and support that I didn't like. Now, I wouldn't put them on the level of great sins in the world, but still, they annoyed me, and I had to go. And I went, why? Because I was duty-bound to be with my husband and to show respect to the position of whatever was going on or the situation that was going on. So this is where he was at. He had to. He was out of his control. So what does he do? He asks for pardon ahead of time. Lord, I recognize that this would be sin. And I am, my heart is not there. And I'm asking that you pardon me when I go and have to serve my king in this capacity. I love that. Does he not have, seem to have a very quick very quickly, he has a very good discerning of what's righteous and what's unrighteous. Wow. For you and I, you know, think about our lives. Are there things in our lives that we need to even ponder on and present them to the Lord in this same manner and say, Lord, you know, I don't like this and I'm stuck and I can't change it. If I could change it, I would. Right? Yes. Right. Right. Absolutely. Right. Exactly. And if you can get out of it, you would. But if you can't, you're stuck. Right? I love it. There's Yoshiko. How's our doctor appointment? Okay. Yay! Well, we'll talk after. I want to hear the details. Okay, good deal. Okay, so this story, is 2 Kings 5, is about Naaman, that he is cured of lep leprosy, and I'm going to put an additional word on here, and healed, because I mean spiritually healed. You could also put the word, and saved even though that word saved is not actually in the text. But what we see, what we're seeing here is a record of a, of a salvation record of this man. And what, this is why the end of the story is so important and why I believe that God is, uh, comes down so hard and, on uh, Gehazi, Gehazi. Okay, so tell me what do you see at the end of the story? Mm-hmm. Right. And what does Gehazi do? He lies to the prophet also. First, he's lied to the man, Naaman, in telling him why he needed these articles, but he lies to him in order to, to gain this monetary things. Then he turns around, and when the prophet Elisha confronts him, where have you been? He lies to him and says, nowhere. I didn't go anywhere. I tell you, that guy is without shame. Uh huh. And can I just thank her for it? I mean, she's lost. I'm beyond a dream when it's saved ever because she's lost. Right. Because they said, you're, you will be cursed with leprosy and your descendants forever. Yeah. Well, again, again, and in that, people go, well, that's not fair because his descendants didn't do anything wrong. 
Okay, stop for a moment and go back to our list about who God is. What do we know about God? He is the all-knowing God. He has already looked down the future. He knows the descendants to follow. And often what we're seeing here, and, and I can also say this. I would say almost without, with certainty that there were probably some exceptions. You know, But the bloodline in general is cursed forever with this, with this judgment against them as a sign. And I would say it, it lasted for generations for the purpose because don't you know this story was told? We know now that it was recorded. It was found to be so significant, so profound that it was retained, it was, it was uh, kept, and now it's being told, uh, re recounted in this record. And so we know that this story of Naaman was significant, and the story of uh, Gehazi was also really important, and that these people needed to learn from it. And that's why God made it be a generational thing that extended beyond him so that they would understand for generations to come the seriousness of what this man did. So what is the seriousness of what he did? What did he, Gehazi do that was so bad? Okay, so he, misrepresentation, okay. Yes. 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 Right. Yes, he does. The testimony. Yes. He undermines the testimony. Because to me, there's two things. There's the picture that's going on in Israel that they're witnessing and seeing God do these things. Then there's also the testimony of Naaman when he goes back to Aram to tell this story. Now, because of God's judgment against Gehazi, he, he, there's more to the story to say, but he got judged. And that had nothing to do with my salvation. My salvation was by grace. God healed me. I did nothing but obediently wash in the in the river and God cleansed me and that is a God of power that is a God of mercy and compassion that is a God who is able and this is the testimony then that he was able to go back because God intervened God took hold of it in other words God consistently protects his his testimony right and so that's what we see him doing here and because Gehazi's um uh, position in life was so visible and uh, up so high uh, for the world to, to watch and to hear about, God had to do something pretty profound to make sure that everyone understood where things went wrong. And Gehazi, I'm guaranteeing he did not, this was not a new thing. It didn't happen just on one day. There is history with this guy on this. And I'll guarantee he's been corrected and corrected and corrected gently by the Lord along the years. And this was the last straw because he's, he was intervening and, and trying to basically pollute or destroy the, the testimony that God had. All right, so now we have Gehazi. So then the end, the end result with Gehazi is what does God do? Gives him leprosy. So that is our title. And I didn't write all these things along. It's much quicker if I can just talk you through them. You'll get the, the list later from me, okay? But your, your outline on your sheets, this, the most important part of our inductive work with this particular kind of, of 
historical record observation is to do your titles and to get your paragraphs. So, because your paragraphs simply are going to do is they're going to make very concise points about the flow of thought. Okay? So, for instance, mine starts in one to five. Naaman is given hope by a little girl, and then he goes to the prophet of the God of Israel. That's, that's the very first thing. The second thing, the king of Israel is distressed, and I subtitled it saying he has no faith in the God of Israel. Okay, then in 8 and 9, Elisha hears about Naaman and calls him. So God again intervenes to, to uh, fulfill the work that he wants to do for Naaman. Even though the king tries to put a, a stumbling stone in the way, God can, works around it and gets and makes sure that Elisha hears of him and he goes to call him. Then uh, 10 to 12, Naaman goes, but then he is enraged by the simplicity of the healing. And I think it's an important point to make as in your flow of thought because then the next thing is Naaman is convinced by a servant. Now think about the position of those two people. He's up here, he's the great warrior, he's a, and he's probably greatly feared. He has this little servant who's down here, and the servant loves him so much and is brave enough to say, oh, but, but master, right? If, if, he had, if Elijah had asked you to do some great thing, you would have. Can you not do this very small thing? And so Naaman is convinced by the voice of a servant. I love that. It just shows his heart. The next is 15 to 19. Naaman's heart is full of thanksgiving, and he turns to God. And then 20 to 24, Gehazi's heart is full of greed. We see that in the storyline of what he does. He plots and he, lie, and he lies basically to attain that silver. 25 to 27 then concludes that Gehazi is confronted. Um, confronted, he's unrepentant after he's, repent, uh, after he's confronted, he is unrepentant. I think that was real significant. When David was confronted about his sin, what did he do? He repented, right? This is the significant difference. This is why David is a man after God's own heart. Not because David did not sin, but because David, when he was confronted, he repents. He recognizes that he's done wrong. Yes. Yes, it is. That's it is. And did you notice there's a major contrast then in this uh, record? Who, what's the major contrast? Who are the two people of the major contrast? Naaman and Gehazi. Gehazi right? I, I'll never get it right. Gehazi. So the the yeah. So the heart of one is contrasted with the heart of the other, right? The curing of one is then contrasted with the, the cursing of the other. So I put it this way, blessing and cursing. Because what does that take us back to? The covenant. This all boils back down to the covenant again. But now we're flying high again. We're way back up here on our viewing of what's going on in this whole storyline. So we can just look at, if we wanted to, if it wanted to really stay high and not do what we just did, we could have stayed high and said, here we see a blessing and a cursing. Blessed for faithfulness and for obedience and for believing God, right? And then cursing for disobedience, for treachery, and for unbelief pretty easy, right? That's sky high. Two, just two basic contrasts. Salvation for one and judgment for the other. 
Okay, so now we're on to blessings and cursings in the next chapter. Let's see what we got going in the, the next part of this. We're in chapter 6 now, 1 to 23. The, the very first one is uh, verses 1 to 7. Real simple, short, little tiny thing. And, it, and it, you kind of wonder, what in the world is this story doing in here? It seems out of place a little bit, does it not? It's a story about an axe head that gets dropped into the water. What is going on here? I think Kay did a good job of helping us kind of tie it in. She took us back to the Old Testament to show us the, um, the law concerning things that we borrowed, right? And what was the law of the land for him? That's right. Wow. Anything that you borrow, if the, if the owner of it is not present when something happens to it, it's either damaged or broken, by God's law, you are responsible to replace it. So if you borrow, you know, a dress and you get a stain on it, then guess what you have to do? You don't get to say, I'm so sorry, here's your stained dress back, <laughs> right? What are you expected to do by God? Replace the dress, right? So... For the prophet that, that had borrowed this axe and had lost the axe head into the water, what was his dilemma in this? How was he going to ever replace an axe head? Now, we kind of laugh about that thinking today. We go, oh, you go to you know, Home Depot <laughs> or Lowe's, right? It's easy. But think about then, this kind of takes you into evaluating a little bit the life of the uh, sons of the prophets, right, or, or the prophets on whole of Israel. What does this kind of tell you about them? They live very meagerly. They are poor. They have very little monetary possessions to the point that he had to borrow a tool to be able to cut down trees in order to build a new place to live, right? They had outgrown their space, basically, which is a good indicator, and it's a little subtlety, but I'm thinking that's good. They're getting bigger, <laughs> right? There's more of them. Um, but so he's lost. So in this storyline then, what does this kind of take us back to? Why, why this particular story? What does it have to do then with the bigger picture? Okay, number one, there was a miracle, and it just shows God's provision within the household of faith even. It isn't that God always provides outside the household of faith, but he often and he always does, provides within the household of faith. So there's one part of the story. Well, God takes care of the little things and the big things. The little things, and I love that. Don't you love that? It shows God takes care of the little things and the big things. God does, yeah, he can cure a man of leprosy. Yeah, he can raise a little boy from the dead. He's capable of doing those big things. But you know what? He's also concerned about the little things in our life. And for this man, of course, it felt like a big thing at the moment because he did not have the means or the ability to replace it. And it was a very small thing. And so, and so Elisha performs this miracle. And, and in that storyline, we also get to reflect back on the fact that since this is God's law and it's God's standard, and he's, uh, he's going to be unable. I got to say one quick thing, though, also on this. When I was young, really young in our, in our marriage, my husband and I, we were poor. Um, I mean, really, we were if you borrow something that you know you can't afford to replace if you did damage it what does that tell you 
you should not borrow. Just, I'm just throwing that out there for you. In this group, I don't think any of us have that problem. We're all capable of replacing if we borrowed something and we needed to. But it's just a good rule of thumb. If you can't replace it, don't borrow it, right? Okay. Um, all right, let's move on. Let's go on to the next part of this story. So that's the first one. Really neat little storyline about providing in the small things. Um, now we're going to look at uh, starting in eight. And it goes to 23. There are three segments on this. Tell me, in, on the whole, what is 2 Kings 6 about? There's kind of two things, or three things, maybe. The first part of this story is Elisha providing, or, or doing this miracle. He recovers an axe, an axe head. It isn't real exciting, but it's part of the storyline, and it has its purpose, right? I, and I, I'm going to say Elisha recovers an axe head. And I'm going to put in parenthesis, God is concerned over the small things. To me, that was just part of it. It may or may not be the most significant part in your thinking on this, but it does show you that he can do big things and he can do little things, and maybe that's part of why he put it in here. The other thing is it's God's law that he would replace it, so God made the provision because it was God's law that he would be breaking if he didn't. Yes, okay, so the next part of the storyline is the story about um, a ram, right? And a ram is coming up against who? Israel, why? What has happened in the first part of the story? What has Elijah done to get this man mad at him? Yeah, so God is revealing to him the, the devious plots of an enemy nation against Israel. That's really the big picture, right? On the big picture, this is God protecting Israel, his people. He's a, he's a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. He has responsibility to protect Israel. And even though they have done everything you can imagine to not deserve his protection, he is still in the work at this point in history of trying to protect them and show himself to them, right? So... God is allowing Elisha to have insight about the tactics and the plans of the enemy. So that's how this opens. And this is what ticks off this king, right? So the king of Aram gets really angry with him. And at first, the king of Aram blames what? He thinks there's conspiracy going on inside the, inside the White House, right? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's leaking information, <laughs> right? <It's laughs> I thought of that, didn't you? I, I don't know about you guys, but I thought, oh, there's a leaker in the White House here. <laughs> At least that's what the, the guy thought. As it turns out, it was God giving insight to his prophet for the sake of protecting his people, his nation. Okay, so the king of Aram, when he realizes that it's Elisha that's the problem, what does he seek to do? tries to capture him. Now, this, is, this makes common sense in the life of a 
warring nations that he would he would do this so he comes he comes after Elisha but what does God do pardon someone I heard somebody okay again even though they've done all these dirty rotten scoundrelous things and even though the king of Israel himself in just the previous uh, chapter we see him with no faith the God of Israel can't heal someone of leprosy. And who do you think I am? A God that I could? There is no God in Israel, and I'm not one of them, <laughs> right? And so he's, he has no faith whatsoever, and yet here's God saying, I'm going to protect these people. And he does so really for the sake of Elisha and those who are faithful to him. So he comes, he comes into this, and he, Elisha's response is absolutely pristine. It's wonderful. Did you, how many of you highlighted? Remember, Kay said, go in and highlight some of the major things that you see in this. How many of you highlighted verse 16? Yeah, me too. It was such a good verse. So he, Elijah, answered to this young man who was his attendant that was afraid because he saw, alas, we're surrounded, right? And Elijah says, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I always think there's a New Testament parallel. Does anybody know it? He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So I thought of that verse in my head, and I thought, oh, this is so funny. I didn't ever know it was put in the Old Testament. There it is. Okay, so then Elisha, you know, uh, does another really profound thing, I think, which is another witness and a testimony. What is, what is his next step? He prays. Isn't that amazing? Even though God has already given him insight, he's, he's already in tap with God, but, I, you know, I don't know if he if he does it because he felt a need for himself in that moment or if he just wanted to make sure that he was being a good witness to those who were watching because his, his servant was afraid. He had faith. He probably didn't need that prayer in that moment necessarily. But I think that really as a good leader, the first thing he does is he says, you know, you know it's, it would be easy for him to say, don't worry about it, God's going to handle it. But instead he stops in that moment and he prays. And he says, Lord, right, this is our need. Right. Yes. That's a prayer that we have to do often because we we know it, but others don't always see it. So that's why I'm saying I think the prayer was all for the benefit of the his witness to the young servant because it wasn't like he stepped up and he said, "Lord, I pray you zap all those people out there." And he could have because we see in other stories where he causes them to be blind and they're taken away into captivity without even a, or, or they run away thinking they hear, you know, the horses of chariots. But in this case, instead, he doesn't even, he doesn't worry himself about the enemy that's coming. He says, I want you to see the spiritual warfare that's going on in the heavenly realm. Yes. 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 You can make a point. Why does he need to pray to the Father? He is right there. He's always in tune. Yeah. So I think it's really more he in tune yes. with God. And I think I see some of that here. Yes, yes. And, his, and, he's abs yes. and he's absolutely focused upon building the faith, excuse me, of this servant, too, in this moment. I mean, he has faith. 
But now he says, Lord, open his eyes so he can see. I'm wondering if that means he already had eyes to see. He was already looking around and seeing them himself. But now he's saying, open his eyes so he can see. So I wonder how much of Elisha's life, it doesn't say, and I'm just jumping into the, into the nowhere with this one, but I wonder how much of Elisha's life he really lived walking with these spiritual eyes that God gave him to see the spiritual realm of things. So he knew where to go, where not to go, and he always felt safe and protected because he could see the power of God was with him. The spirit, uh, Do you guys remember those books, um, This Present Darkness and the Peretti books, yeah, where there's spiritual warfare going on in the heavenly realms. I never actually read the books. I've heard about the books because I don't read books, but <laughs> I, don't, I keep saying that. I don't like to read, but these books are really cool. I, I would love it if they would make movies, and I've heard they're going to. Has anybody heard anything more about that in recent years? But wouldn't it be awesome to see a movie made, because we've got the technology to do it now, that would show the spiritual realm of things and the warfare that's going on in the heavenlies around us all the time. I mean, I do think that we would, we would just live, I think we would live our lives very differently, do you not? How much different do you think you would be? How much difference did it make in the life of this servant in that moment? When his eyes were opened and he saw the spiritual realm of things and he saw God's power and presence with him in that battle. Can't you see that, though, in what's going on in our government? Okay. Yeah. Explain. Well, I just see such spiritual warfare going on. Oh, yeah. I see the spiritual, I see the result of the spiritual warfare, but I mean, if we could have our eyes open to see the spiritual warfare... We would. So, so we would run. So do you remember <laughs> Do you remember then in your cross-references this week, she asked you to go and look in Daniel, right? Okay, what did you see in Daniel when you dropped in there? And for those of you who are just dropping in and have never really examined it, it might have been a little harder for you. But for some of you guys, we've done the Daniel study several times. What's going on in the, that verse, that, that cross-reference that we went to? The kings of Persia and the kings of, I can't remember what the other nation was. It might have been Greece, right? What was going on? Well, I was going to say Daniel prayed for help. And, yes. And the angel finally came yeah. to him and said, well, we heard you that when you first started praying, but we've been over there fighting. Yes. And this was the angel of the Lord. And, I, and this, again, is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ himself. So this is Christ himself in the heavenly realms in spirit, engaged in spiritual warfare on behalf of what in that account? Kingdoms. These different kingdoms. And do you remember what the major theme was in Daniel? In chapter 2 where it says it is God who does what? Raises them up and puts them down, or, or up and down, whichever direction you want to do first. That's right. So he raises them up and he puts them down. And in that particular cross-reference she took us to in Daniel, that's what was being shown to us. That the, the, um, um, the man in linen, uh, who is the angel of the Lord, he is engaged in spiritual warfare, holding back for a period of time. And then what's really cool is if you go on forward in the book, and she didn't take us there, I think it was in chapter 11, later you see him where he's allowing. So where before he was holding back in a certain nation, then later he's seen as, a, as helping and assisting that nation to come in. So it's not that the nation was good or bad, but that he's raising up and putting down nations. 
And this, to me, kind of ties in when we get into the next storyline where we're looking at that man, Hazel. Is that his name, Hazel? Hazael, yes. And where we saw God all the way back in the days of Elijah, that he had Elijah go and anoint him to be the king. Now we're going to come forward and we're getting ready to look at him again. Now he's coming up and he's going to become king. But boy, is it interesting how he, how he actually comes in to, to take up that position. And yet it is who that anointed him to be king? And, and therefore who? God himself. God anointed this man who commits an act of murder to be the next king over, over the nation of Aram. So now, going back to what we're learning about the character of our God, the power of our God, the, not only the character, but the attributes of who our God is, what are we seeing going on here in the spiritual warfare that gets presented? Boy, is he sovereign. And sometimes he raises up even evil people to do, that are going to do some evil things. Now, why would he do that? Bringing possibly to bring judgment itself on a particular nation. And you know what's interesting? Do you remember when God says back to when we studied Ezekiel, God said, I am bringing the Babylonians or the Chaldeans against you, and they're going to do this and they're going to do that. And then later he says, but I will rise up and I will punish them. I'm like, okay, wait a minute. First you tell them to come and do something that's really horrible, like kill the Israelites, right? And then later you're going to punish him for killing the Israelites? What is that about, right? So how do you reconcile this God who can raise up and put down kingdoms? And what, are, what is the bigger scheme? So again, this is where we have to rise above this and go up to a higher level and say, what is the plan here? Because it seems contradictory sometimes in our hearts, right? Sometimes you hit a verse and you're going, I don't get it. Why does he tell him he's going to use him to do that? And then punishing him for doing it, right? What's going on? He is the sovereign. He is God most high, right? Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most evil men of all history, at the end of his life, bowed his knee to God and recognized him as God most high, right? And as God most high, what is his agenda? What is his goal? Is he evil? Does he just play and toy with man? Is, he, is it a big joke to him? No, what is God trying to do? What is he showing us? Right. Okay, to know him and to rely on him, to trust him. But how does that kind of activity cause us to trust him? He is to reconcile a plan that he has. He knows the big picture, so he's reconciling what needs to be done for things. And he uses man for his own heart. Okay, good. So what is the quality about God then that we're kind of seeing him execute as he does this, for instance, bring an evil nation against his own people to, to punish them, but then judges the evil nation for being evil? What are we seeing about God? He's righteous, and he's righteous in his judgment, and he's impartial. He sees all sin the same. But he, he uses sometimes the evil in this world. How, how about in our lives? Does God, do you see God sometimes allow really what you would consider evil or bad things to happen to you? And you know God is sovereign. You don't have to be underneath the distress or the despairs that you're under, but God's allowing it, right? If you believe that he's sovereign, yeah. 
You have to believe that. So when a bad thing happens, somebody you love dies, or, or you get a really bad disease, or you lose your job and all your finances are gone, or whatever your, whatever your you know, dilemma or plight is in life, God uses that. And sometimes God removes us out of it quickly. Sometimes he leaves us there. What is God doing? He's showing, I'm sorry, say it again. Okay, all right. Part of it is just to show us who he is, that we would see him. And you know, um, there's, a, there's a question that's asked, and I've forgotten where it is, but who are you to ask the potter, right, how to form the clay? or, or And is it Job? Isaiah? Romans covers it as well. Yeah. Okay, so he says, who are you to tell the potter what to do with the clay? And so the question comes down in that particular, I think it's in Romans, it's in chapter 9, 10, and 11, where it covers the subject of the sovereignty of God in those chapters. And what God is trying to show us is, do you, do you trust this God? This is the God that you are coming to know through these storylines that we're looking at. Do you trust him? When bad things come and happen to you and you know God is sovereign, do you do like the one king and you blame God and you blame the prophets of God? You blame the church? Or do you instead, do you say, you know what? I don't know what the full story is here. I don't know the bigger picture and God's plan for me yet. But one day I will. And in the meantime, in the midst of the hurt and in the midst of the misery, the frustration, the anger, whatever your feelings are that you're dealing with, this is what you know about God. He is a loving God. He desires that men come to know him. He is the sovereign of the universe. He is the life giver. He is the one who is patient with us and long-suffering. And everything that he does, he does for our good. And that is what he was trying to teach Israel. So we're looking at story after story after story, and you can get dropped into them and get really lost in the details. But the big picture here is God wants all of us to come to know him and to trust him. And that when things sometimes look like God is doing something bad, what do we have to remember? God is not bad, and he does not do evil, neither does he tempt man. God is the anchor that we go back to what it, so in inductive bible study you never violate your known doctrines so the doctrines about who god is that that you can trust even when you fall into a scripture verse where you get confused and you're going oh wait a minute this looks confusing to me what do you need go back to your go back to your plumb line don't violate what you know is true god loves you god desires for your welfare and your good god's he also desires, I remember this is one of the things my mentor taught me when I was first discipled as a baby Christian, and she would say to me often, God is not so concerned about your happiness as he is about your holiness. So sometimes he'll allow you to be unhappy in order to bring about holiness in your life. So would you say that that's what we're seeing with Israel? That there are times when God allows the enemy to come against them and and torment them basically and then he comes in and rescues them and says okay I did this great thing for you now worship me and Israel does what they don't yeah they doesn't <laughs> exactly 
All right. So that's the bigger picture. We see this spiritual warfare that's going on where we're seeing God, the sovereign of the universe. I love that they kind of gave this little glimpse into this storyline. I think about Elijah's whole life and how his eyes must have been opened to so much that the people around him often were not, which gave him power and boldness and confidence, which, you know, exhorted him to do really uh, beyond the pale things, but also would probably humbled him taught him to sit back and wait on the Lord, not to get ahead of God on things sometimes, right? So we see then the king of Aram, he seeks to seize Elisha. God opens his servant's eyes to see that God's chariots of fire are all around him and there's spiritual protection for them. And then what is, so his eyes are open and what's the contrast in the next section? He blinds the eyes of the enemy. Is there not a spiritual teaching in that particular storyline. We're getting close to here being done. Yeah, we got to get through this now. Okay, so that takes us to the end. Now, the title then for that, Elisha Recovers an Axe Head is the first uh, title. Then we see in the next paragraph, basically there's a very clear distinction, so we have to have two titles in this one. What do you see would be then the title for the next one? Again, it's about Elisha. He's the major subject. What does he do there? You don't have to get every point about the storyline in your title. You just want a title to help you say, oh, I remember that's what was going on here. What is the major thing that's going on here about? About the... Oh, no, we're not into that next one. I'm talking about in verses 8 to... Um, 23, where Elisha just saw this spiritual warfare that took place. What was the event that was going on that would be the major event? Aram is doing what? Aram is coming to war against them, right? And so Elisha then does what? He warns Israel. Why would that be the key point that I think is significant here? What do we see big picture about God, how he's dealing and working with in this? Yeah. Try, yes, he's trying to convince Israel. I am your protector. I love you. I will provide for you. Come to me. Trust me. I love you, right? And again, so here we see a storyline of, of Elisha, God's prophet. Now, you could put all these words in here, but I'm just shortening it to just Elijah. But the man of God, God's man of, in Israel, he warns Israel of ambush by the enemy or by a ram or however you want to say that, right? Then the whole storyline unfolds from there, right? Elisha warns Israel. And if you wanted to say, you could do it this way. God warns Israel of a ram, of a ram's ambush. Which is? Which is because he's over not only uh, for God's hearing, but also over the people as well. It's kind of one of those, um, he's warning them as more of a, a role as someone um, who cares for them. It's not just judgment. It's one of those. Yes. Yeah, in most of them, he, he's judging them. He's bringing judgment against them. And in this account, we see him protecting them. Yeah. He's their protector. I actually think that's what I thought this chapter was about, is about the role of the prophet in Israel. Um, yeah. Over again. Again, these are 
Yeah, right. Which is, so this absolutely. So this is again, if you if you elevate above, you know, fly high again, go come up above the picture, big picture. What is God doing through this storyline? Lots of details, lots of things you can get lost in. But what are we what are we seeing about how God is operating with Israel, this nation at this point? We see here God is sending His prophet to warn Israel about an ambush by an enemy, and that shows God, again, to be what? The covenant maker and the covenant keeper. Correct? So we see him keeping covenant with Israel, protecting them from their enemies, even though they don't deserve it. Right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Kind of a back, it's kind of a backstory, a backdrop that we could develop. We should make movies on this stuff. I'm telling you, the movie makers are missing the best stories. Think of this, you know, this backdrop story that could go on about how the king of Aram is seeing and witnessing what God is doing and how God is given insight. Wow, that's very interesting. Their God opens eyes to thwart the plans of other nations and of, of, the, of men of, and, and kings and kingdoms of other places. And that's power to them. That would be intriguing. It would be enticing. Even if he didn't immediately come into salvation with that information, it would draw him to investigate, right? To, come, to want to know more about. And what we have come to see this week, because we did a lot of looking at a ram, we built some context about who Aram is, right? Went back and looked at lots of verses to see the lineage and, and who they really are. It's, it, Aram, by modern terms, is what? Syria. Syria, right. So the land of Syria, the nation of Syria, is, is given the, the insight, the opportunity to come to know God. And it seems like there's an awful lot of interrelationship with Syria and Israel at this time in history. And quite honestly, throughout all history, and now that we're back to Israel being on its land again and a nation established again, guess who is prominent on their radar again? Syria, right? So the, these king, the kings of the north and the kings of the south, when you look at the end-time prophetic words, it's Syria and Egypt, right? So they're always going to be a big part of God's plan. And so he, working with Syria here over and over, not very successfully, but he's certainly patient with them. Okay, so we saw the contrast in that one between opening eyes and closing eyes, right? Or blinding. Okay, closing eyes or the blinding of enemies, however you want to say that, which is really cool. All right, now we're going to go to, because we're going to wrap this up, we've got to get through this next part in like five seconds almost. Uh, 2 Kings 6, 24 through 720 was your next big section. And this is a story about what uh, city? Samaria or the area of Samaria and what's going on with Samaria at this time historically what's happened to them they're under siege by Aram right and what else is going on for them on their land famine now tell me big picture 
in the, the blessings and the cursings of God, what do you see? Those are both judgments. They should have seen that. That should have been a clue, right? But what, so they're under famine. They're being besieged by a ram. And those verse 24 and 25 opens up and sets that stage. Then 26 to 29, we see an event that shows how horrific the famine is and how horrific the besiegement is. It's cut off supplies. It's cut off their food sources. What is the story there? What, how horrible are these people? They're into cannibalism and, and the worst kind of it, which is eating of their own children. Unbelievable. That just, I mean, it makes me think of the, what was the wagon train? The, the Donners? Something like, was that, is that right? Okay. Yeah, the Oregon Trail. I should know this because I grew up in Oregon. But anyway, okay. <laughs> Horrible acts of cannibalism are going on. So what that does in the storyline of this event, it just shows you how desperate they were and the plight that they were in to the place that they had come was all the way to the point of cannibalism, okay? Then in, in 30 to 33, the, to the end of chapter 6, what is the response of the king? Even though you very easily, you you shallow-minded Gentiles in generations into the future, immediately when you saw famine and war, you went, ah, blessings and cursings. These are the cursings. You knew it right away, right? Easy peasy. What is the king of Israel, who is a Jew, and is underneath that covenant, what does he say? This is Elisha's fault. And then later he says it's also whose fault? The Lord did this. And by the way, the phrasing of this, the Lord brought this evil upon us. Now, does God do evil? No. It's absolutely a fundamental principle of truth that we hang on to. This is our pillar of, of absolute, right? The, the doctrines you don't violate. God does not do evil, right? And this king, his response to all this evil, these women who made a bargain, I'll, let's kill your kid today and we'll eat mine tomorrow. And they did, and they, well, they weren't, but the, woman, the other woman's complaining because she didn't get her, her. Wasn't there another story like that, or is this it? About the baby and the boiling? There's the baby's cut in half at Solomon's time. Yeah. Yeah, but this is horrible. So it just shows you what they're doing in the storyline here is showing you the depths of despair. What's really cool, though, is at the opening here of the next chapter, 7, what is the, 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 the next piece of information that we're given? What happens next? I'm sorry, I didn't hear it. An answer. Okay, and what's really cool, though, is... Who speaks it, right? And who's going to come to the rescue again, right? Again. So God has brought the cursing upon them, but now he's going to take two steps back and he's going to relent on some, some of the pressure and he's going to provide for them, give them help. So on the one hand, he brings a cursing, but on the other hand, then he backs up two steps and says, will you now worship me? Will you now confess your sin? But in the midst of this, we already saw the king is saying, this is God's fault. And this is God's prophet's fault. We're in this big mess, and we're eating our own flesh, and we're in famine, and we're having war against us because of God. God did this. 
<laughs> this guy has not learned his lesson yet. However, for the sake of the people, for the sake of the masses, and for the sake of those who in, um, in their midst might be some of the righteous, it kind of makes me think of the Abraham and the Lot story, you know, but for the sake of 10, but for the sake of, you know, five, you know, he, he dwindles down from 50 to five, and he says, for the sake of even one, God will do so. And so here we see God relenting. And he's gonna, he, he gives a, a message through his prophet. He says, I'm going to send um, basically food. But then what happened, this royal officer, it's another little sideline in this story. What does the royal officer do? No, nah, the Lord can't do that. No, it's not going to happen. So did any of you do some research on that conversation and why God responds to him so harshly? This was actually a form of scoffing, and it was totally a, 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 a um, dis, disbelief on his part, a disbelieving that God can and a disbelieving that God will. So he's, he's dis, discounting God altogether. God can't and he won't. And not only that, but he didn't believe there really was a God that had that kind of power, right? So, and because he was scoffing at the man of God's pro prophetic word, He's scorning him, basically. And what do we know about people who scorn the prophets of God? Thank goodness a bear didn't show up in this story again, right? <laughs> a few, or a lion, <laughs> right? Okay, so we see then that this, then, then the next part of the story is about the leopard, leopardous men. There are four leopardous men. They are also in a place of total distress. They just kind of come to a conclusion, well, you know what? Rather than just sitting here and dying, which we will, let's just take a chance and turn ourselves over to our enemies and maybe we'll get lucky and they'll feed us. But if they don't, then it'll be a quick death. And that's better than starving to death slowly, right? Actually, logical. Pretty, I mean, figuring out their odds and what will work best for them and they go for it. And in doing so, they probably, I don't know that they do know story, God's, prophetic word through Elisha, but they go and they do this activity, and in the course of it, of course, they find what? What's happened? The camp has, has fled. It's completely empty. And not only had they fled, they fled in haste, and what did they leave behind? All that food and supplies, right? So they got there. They show up. They fill their bellies. They had their meal, um, and they start to basically plunder the place, taking things away to hide it for themselves, right, to have a resource of money and so forth. But what happens? Their conscience gets the better of them. <laughs> All of a sudden, they're like, um, I think I have an oral, a moral obligation to my fellow man. Uh, and not only that, but I really do think that maybe, see, these guys are pretty good reasoners. They actually reason through things. And you know what? There are people of Christian faith who really love the Lord. This, I, I got to confess, I'm a little bit like this. You, you kind of weigh everything out. Okay, well, if I do this, this will happen. If I do this, this will happen. Okay, so, you know, what will happen? Which is the best way to go, right? And that's, there's nothing wrong in doing that. That's perfectly fine. In the end, they allowed their moral conscience to be the guide which means they had some kind of a spiritual connection, I believe, to doing what's right and knowing what was right. So they did the right thing. They went back. They gave this information. And then we get this really long rendition about 
this person told this person, and this person told this person. It's kind of, I don't exactly understand why all this is, is in the storyline, except that in, along the way, I guess it kind of gives a little bit more information about the fact that they're very hungry. The people in general are very hungry, and um, the, gate, the gatekeepers called and told it to the kings. That, well, first of all, these lepers show up, and they call the gatekeepers and tell them. Then the gatekeepers go and tell it to the king. And then the king tells one of his servants, go and do this exercise to see what's going on out there. He is, again, yet skeptical, right? Doesn't believe that what the uh, lepers had told him is totally true. Um, maybe rightly so for a king to be leery because he didn't want it to be a trap um anyway so he he kind of sends these these forerunners out to check it out and then the messengers at the end return back and tell the king hey yeah it's true they're gone right so now what happens at the conclusion of verse 16 the people get to go and plunder all that food they get filled they get fed exactly as god had said you go back to the, he says in here, tomorrow, about this time, this is what's going to happen. Guess what? It's now tomorrow, about that time. And guess what? They're being fed. It happened exactly. So I love the repeated phrase in here where it says, it happened just as the man of God had spoken. And then he closes in verse 20, repeats that again. And so it happened to him, for all the people then had trampled on him. So in this case, the second it happened, what was that? What happened to that man who was skeptical, who was, was criticizing the man of God? Trampled. trampled to death. So Elijah, when he makes this prophecy and telling these people, there's hope for you, at the same time, because of the scoffer and because he had scoffed God's man, he had scoffed the prophet of God, and then literally he had scoffed God himself, in doubt, in unbelief, and not only that, but a sneering, God says, you will not enjoy the food. You will not live to enjoy the food. So he's going to die. And so sure enough, he does. So he concludes with that. So we see, we see three repeated times in 16, 18, and 20, where again, you see, and the word of the Lord is what? Fulfilled. So big picture, what is God showing us? The Lord does exactly as he says. The Lord speaks, and it happens. Well, that's as much as we're going to get through. Again, we're, we're shy on that first part of chapter 8. Now, I want to make one point to you, though, in case you have not noticed. Um, the ministry of Elisha has been um, recanted for us. It begins back in chapter 2 and verse 19, where Elijah approaches him, right, and, and ordain, or commissions him basically to come into the ministry. And then you see Elisha followed all the way until chapter 8, verse 15. I just want you to see that. So there's a segment division on the subject being Elisha that you could mark for yourself if you are interested in doing your segment divisions. Where, where again? Okay, 